Hello, wonderful listeners and readers. Thank you so much for being here and following along with me as we're reading this beautiful book, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Today, I've noticed I have a little bit of a frog in my throat, so I apologize if I will need to take moments here and there to clear my throat or grab some water. Um, But we're going to keep calm and carry on and read two chapters today, starting with chapter 30. Today, I am a woman, wrote Francie in her diary, in the summer when she was 13. She looked at the sentence and absently scratched a mosquito bite on her bare leg. She looked down on her long, thin, and as yet formless legs. She crossed out that sentence and started over. Soon, I shall become a woman. She looked down on her chest, which was as flat as a washboard, and ripped the page out of the book. She started fresh on a new page. Intolerance, she wrote, pressing down hard on the pencil is a thing that causes war, pogroms, crucifixions, crucifixions, lynchings, and makes people cruel to little children and to each other. It is responsible for most of the viciousness, violence, terror, and heart and soul breaking of the world. She read the words over aloud. They sounded like words that came in a can. The freshness was cooked out of them. She closed the book and put it away. That that summer Saturday was a day that should have gone down in her diary as one of the happiest days of her life. She saw her name in print for the first time. The school got out a magazine at the end of the year in which the best story written in composition class from each grade was published. Francie's composition, called Wintertime, had been chosen as the best of the seventh grade work. The magazine cost a dime and Francie had to wait until Saturday to get it. School closed for the summer the day before, and Francie worried that she wouldn't get the magazine. But Mr. Jensen said he'd be working around on Saturday, and if she brought the dime over, he'd give her a copy. Now, in the early afternoon, she stood in front of her door with the magazine opened to the page of her story. She hoped someone would come along to whom she could show it. She had shown it to Mama at lunchtime, but Mama had to get back to work and didn't have time to read it. At least five times during lunch, Francie mentioned that she had a story published. At last, Mama said, Yes, yes, I know. I saw it all coming. There will be more stories printed and you'll get used to it. Now don't let it get to your head. There are dishes to be washed. Papa was at the union headquarters. He wouldn't see the story until Sunday, but Francie knew he'd be pleased. So she stood on the street with her glory tucked under her arm. She couldn't let the magazine out of her hands even for a moment. From time to time, she'd glance at her name in print and the excitement about it never grew less. 
she saw a girl named Joanna come out of her house a few doors away. Joanna was taking her baby out for an airing in its carriage. A gasp came up from some housewives who had stopped to gossip on the sidewalk while going to and fro about their shopping. You see, Joanna was not married. She was a girl who had gotten into trouble. Her baby was illegitimate. Bastard was the word they used in the neighborhood. And these good women felt that Joanna had no right to act like a proud mother and bring her baby out into the light of day. They felt that she should have kept it hidden in some dark place. Francie was curious about Joanna and the baby. She had heard Mama and Papa talking about them. She stared at the baby when the carriage came by. It was a beautiful little thing sitting up happily in its carriage. Maybe Joanna was a bad girl, but certainly she kept her baby sweeter and daintier than these good women kept theirs. The baby wore a pretty frilled bonnet and a clean white dress and bib. The carriage cover was spotless and showed much loving handiwork in its embroidery. Joanna worked in a factory while her mother took care of the baby. The mother was too ashamed to take it out, so the baby got an airing only on weekends when Joanna wasn't working. Yes, Francie decided, it was a beautiful baby. It looked just like Joanna. Francie remembered how Papa had described her that day he and Mama were talking about her. She has skin like a magnolia petal. Johnny had never seen a magnolia. Her hair is as black as a raven's wing. He had never seen such a bird. And her eyes are deep and dark like forest pools. He had never been in a forest, and the only pool he knew was where each man put in a dime and guessed what the Dodgers score would be, and whoever guessed right got all the dimes. But he had described Joanna accurately. She was a beautiful girl. That may be, answered Katie, but what good is her looks? They're a curse to the girl. I heard that her mother was never married, but had two children just the same. And now the mother's son is in Sing Sing, and her daughter has this baby. There must be bad blood all along the line, and no use getting sentimental about it. Of course, she added, with a detachment of which she was astonishingly capable at times. It's none of my business. I don't need to do anything about it one way or the other. I don't need to go out and spit on the girl because she did wrong. Neither do I have to take her in my house and adopt her because she did wrong. She suffered as much pain bringing that child into the world as though she was married. If she's a good girl at heart, she'll learn from the pain and the shame and she won't do it again. She's naturally bad. It won't bother her the way people treat her. So if I was you, Johnny, I wouldn't feel too sorry for her. Suddenly, she turned to Francie and said, Let Joanna be a lesson to you. On this Saturday afternoon, Francie watched Joanna walk up and down and wondered in what way she was a lesson. Joanna acted proud about her baby. Was the lesson there? 
Joanna was only 17 and friendly, and she wanted everybody to be friendly with her. She smiled at the grim, good women, but the smile went away when she saw that they answered her with frowns. She smiled at the little children playing on the street. Some smiled back. She smiled at Francie. Francie wanted to smile back, but didn't. Excuse me. Was the lesson that she mustn't be friendly with girls like Joanna? The good housewives, their arms filled with bags of vegetables and brown paper parcels of meat, seemed to have little to do that afternoon. They kept gathering into little knots and whispering to each other. The whispering stopped when Joanna came by and started up when she had passed. Each time Joanna passed, her cheeks got pinker, her head went higher, and her skirt flipped behind her more defiantly. She seemed to go grow prettier and prouder as she walked. She stopped oftener than needed to adjust the baby's coverlet. She maddened the women by touching the baby's cheek and smiling tenderly at it. How dare she? How dare she, they thought, act as though she had a right to all that. Many of these good women had children, which they brought up by scream and cuff. Many of them hated the husbands who lay by their sides at night. There was no longer high joy for them in the act of love. They endured the lovemaking rigidly, praying all the while that another child would not result. This bitter submissiveness made the man ugly and brutal. To most of them, the love act had become a brutality on both sides. The sooner over with, the better. They resented this girl because they felt that it had not been so with her and the father of her child. Joanna recognized their hate, but wouldn't cringe before it. She would not give in and take the baby indoors. Something had to give. The women broke first. They couldn't endure it any longer. They had to do something about it. The next time Joanna passed, a stringy stringy woman called out, Ain't you ashamed of yourself? What for? Joanna wanted to know. This infuriated the woman. What for, she asks. She reported to the other women. I'll tell you what for, because you're a disgrace and a bum. You got no right to parade the streets with your bastard where innocent children can see you. I guess this is a free country, said Joanna. Not free for the likes of you. Get off the street. Get off the street. Try and make me. Get off the street, you whore, ordered the stringy woman. The girl's voice trembled when she answered. Be careful what you're saying. We don't have to be careful what we say to no streetwalker, chipped in another woman. A man passing by stopped a moment to take it in. He touched Joanna's arm. Look, sister, why don't you go home till these battle axes cool off? You can't win with them. Joanna jerked her arm away. You mind your own business. I meant it in the right way, sister. Sorry, he walked on. 
Why don't you go with him? taunted the stringy woman. He might be good for a quarter. The others laughed. You're all jealous, said Joanna evenly. She says we're jealous, reported the interlocutor. Jealous of what, you? She said you, as though it were the girl's name. Jealous that men like me, that's what. Lucky you're married already, she told the stringy one. You'd never get a man otherwise. I bet your husband spits on you afterwards. I bet that's just what he does. <gasps> bitch, you bitch, screamed the stringy one hysterically. Then, acting on an instinct which was strong even in Christ's day, she picked a stone out of the gutter and threw it at Joanna. It was the signal for the other women to start throwing stones. One, droller than the rest, threw a ball of horse manure. Some of the stones hit Joanna, but a sharp pointed one missed and struck the baby's forehead. Immediately, a thin clear trickle of blood ran down the baby's face and spotted its clean bib. The baby whimpered and held out, held out its arms for its mother to pick it up. A few women, poised to throw the next stones, dropped them quietly back into the gutter. The baiting was all over. Suddenly, the women were ashamed. They had not wanted to hurt the baby. They only wanted to drive Joanna off the street. They dispersed and went home quietly. Some children who had been standing around listening resumed their play. Joanna, crying now, lifted the baby from the carriage. The baby continued to whimper quietly as though it had no right to cry out loud. Joanna pressed her cheek to her baby's face and her tears mixed with its blood. The women won. Joanna carried her baby into the house, not caring that the carriage stood in the middle of the sidewalk. And Francie had seen it all, had seen it all. She had heard every word. She remembered how Joanna had smiled at her and how she had turned her head away without smiling back. Why hadn't she smiled back? Why hadn't she smiled back? Now she would suffer. She would suffer all the rest of her life every time that she remembered that she had not smiled back. Some small boys started to play tag around the empty carriage, holding on to its sides and pulling it way over while being chased. Francie scattered them and wheeled the carriage over to Joanna's door and put the brake on. There was an unwritten law that nothing was to be molested that stood outside the door where it belonged. She was still holding the magazine with her story in it. She stood next to the braked carriage and looked at her name once more. Wintertime by Frances Nolan. She wanted to do something, sacrifice something to pay for not having smiled at Joanna. She thought of her story. She was so proud of it, so eager to show Papa and Aunt Evie and Sissy. She wanted to keep it always to look at and to get that nice warm feeling when she looked at it. If she gave it away, there was no means by which she could get another copy. She slipped the magazine under the baby's pillow. She left it open at the page of her story.
She saw some tiny drops of blood on the baby's snowy pillow. Again, she saw the baby, the thin trickle of blood on its face, the way it held out its arms to be taken up. A wave of hurt broke over Francie and left her weak when it passed. Another wave came, broke, and receded. She found her way down to the cellar of her house and sat in the darkest corner on a heap of burlap sacks and waited while the hurt waves swept over her. As each wave spent itself and a new one gathered, she trembled. Tensely, she sat there waiting for them to stop. If they didn't stop, she'd have to die. She'd have to die. After a while, they came fainter and there was a longer time between each one. She began to think. She was now getting her lesson from Joanna, but it was not the kind of lesson her mother meant. She remembered Joanna. Often at night, on her way home from the library, she had passed Joanna's house and seen her and the boy standing close together in the narrow vestibule. She had seen the boy stroke Joanna's pretty hair tenderly, had seen how Joanna put her hand to touch his cheek, and Joanna's face looked peaceful and dreamy in the light from the street lamp. Out of that beginning, then, had come the shame and the baby. Why? Why? The beginning had seemed so tender and so right. Why? She knew that one of the women stone throwers had had a baby only three months after her marriage. Francie had been one of the children standing at the curb watching the party leave for the church. She saw the bulge of pregnancy under the virginal veil of the bride as she stepped into the hired carriage. She saw the hand of the father close tight on the bridegroom's arm. The groom had black shadows under his eyes and looked very sad. Joanna had no father, no menkin. There was no one to hold her boy's arm tight on the way to the altar. That was Joanna's crime, decided Francie. Not that she had been bad, but that she had not been smart enough to get the boy to the church. Francie had no way of knowing the whole story. As a matter of fact, the boy loved Joanna and was willing to marry her after. As the saying goes, he had gotten her into trouble. The boy had a family, a mother and three sisters. He told them he wanted to marry Joanna and they talked him out of it. Don't be a fool, they told him. She's no good. Her whole family's no good. Besides, how do you know you're the one? If she had you, she had others. Oh, women are tricky. We know. We are women. You are good and tender-hearted. You take her word for it that you are the man? She lies. Don't be tricked, my son. Don't be tricked, our brother. If you must marry, marry a good girl. One who won't sleep with you without the priest saying the words to make it right. If you marry this girl, you are no longer my son. You are no longer our brother. You'll never be sure whether the child is yours. You will worry while you are at your work. You'll wonder who slips into your bed beside her after you have left in the morning. 
Oh yes, my son, our brother, this is how women do. We know. We are women. We know how they do. The boy had let himself be persuaded. His womenfolk gave him money, and he got a room and a new job over in Jersey. They wouldn't tell Joanna where he was. He never saw her again. Joanna wasn't married. Joanna had the baby. The waves had almost stopped passing over Francie when she discovered, to her fright, that something was wrong with her. She pressed her hand over her heart, trying to feel a jagged edge under the flesh. She had heard Papa sing so many songs about the heart, the heart that was breaking, was aching, was dancing, was heavy laden, that leapt for joy, that was heavy in sorrow, that turned over, that stood still. She really believed that the heart actually did these things. She was terrified, thinking her heart had broken inside her over Joanna's baby, and that the blood was now leaving her heart and flowing from her body. She went upstairs to the flat and looked into the mirror. Her eyes had dark shadows beneath them, and her head was aching. She lay on the old leather couch in the kitchen and waited for Mama to come home. She told Mama what had happened to her in the cellar. She said nothing about Joanna. Katie sighed and said, So soon? You're just 13. I didn't think it would come for another year yet. I was 15. Then, then, this is all right? What's happening? It's a natural thing that comes to all women. I'm not a woman. It means you're changing from a girl into a woman. Do you think it will go away? In a few days, but it will come back again in a month. For how long? For a long time. Until you are 40 or even 50, she mused a while. My mother was 50 when I was born. Oh, it has something to do with having babies. Yes. Remember, always be a good girl because you can have a baby now. Joanna and her baby flashed through Francie's mind. You mustn't let the boys kiss you, said Mama. Is that how you get a baby? No. But what makes you get a baby often starts with a kiss. She added, remember Joanna. Now, Katie didn't know about the street scene. Joanna happened to pop into her mind, but Francie thought she had wonderful powers of insight. She looked at Mama with new respect. Remember Joanna. Remember Joanna. Francie could never forget her. From that time on, remembering the stoning women, she hated women. She feared them for their devious ways. She mistrusted their instincts. She began to hate them for this disloyalty and their cruelty to each other. Of all the stone throwers, not one had dared to speak a word for the girl for fear that she might be, she would be tarred with Joanna's brush. The passing man had been the only one who spoke with kindness in his voice. 
Most women had the one thing in common. They had great pain when they gave birth to their children. This should make a bond that held them all together. It should make them love and protect each other against the man world. But it was not so. It seemed like their great birth pains shrank their hearts and their souls. They stuck together for only one thing, to trample on some other woman, whether it was by throwing stones or by mean gossip. It was the only kind of loyalty they seemed to have. Men were different. They might hate each other, but they stuck together against the world and against any women who would ensnare one of them. Francie opened the copybook which she used for a diary. She skipped a line under the paragraph that she had written about intolerance and wrote, As long as I live, I will never have a woman for a friend. I will never trust any woman again, except maybe Mama and sometimes Aunt Evie and Aunt Sissy. Chapter 31 Two very important things happened in the year that Francie was 13. War broke out in Europe and a horse fell in love with Aunt Evie. Evie's husband and his horse drummer had been bitter enemies for eight years. He was mean to the horse. He kicked him and punched him and cursed at him and pulled too hard on the bit. The horse was mean to Uncle Willie Flitman. The horse knew the, ro- routine, knew the route and stopped automatically at each delivery. It had been his habit to start up again as soon as Flitman mounted the wagon. Lately, he had taken to starting up the instant Flitman got off to deliver milk. He'd break into a trot, and often Flitman had to run more than half a block to catch up with him. Flitman was through delivering at noon. He'd go home to eat dinner, then bring the horse and wagon back to the stable, where he was supposed to wash Drummer and the wagon. The horse had a mean trick. Often, when Flitman was washing under his belly, he'd wet on him. The other fellows would stand around waiting for this to happen so that they could have a good laugh. Flitman couldn't stand it, so he got in the habit of washing the horse in front of his house. That was all right in the summer, but it was a little hard on the horse in the winter. Often, on a bitterly cold day, Evie would go down and tell Willie that it was a mean thing to wash Drummer in the cold, and with cold water, too. The horse seemed to know that Evie was taking his part. As she argued with her husband, Drummer would whinny pitifully and lay his head on her shoulder. One cold day, Drummer took matters into his own hands, or, as Aunt Evie said it, into his own feet. Francie listened, enchanted, while Aunt Evie told the story to the Nolans. No one could tell a story like Evie. She acted out all the parts, even the horse, and, in a funny way, she'd put what she thought each one was secretly thinking at the time. It happened like this, according to Evie. Willie was down on the street washing the shivering horse with cold water and hard yellow soap. 
Evie was standing at the window watching. He leaned under to watch the horse's belly and the horse tensed. Flitman thought Drummer was going to wet on him again and it was more than, more than the harassed and futile little man could stand. He hauled off and punched the horse in the belly. The horse lifted a leg and kicked him decisively in the head. Flitman rolled under the horse and lay unconscious. Evie ran down. The horse whinnied happily when he saw her, but she paid no attention to him. When he looked over his shoulder and saw that Evie was trying to drag Flitman out from under, he started to walk. Maybe he wanted to help Evie by pulling the wagon clear of the unconscious man, or maybe he wanted to finish the job by rolling the wagon over him. Evie hollered out, Whoa there, boy! And Drummer stopped just in time. A little boy had gone for a policeman who had gone for the ambulance. The ambulance doctor couldn't make out whether Flitman had a fracture or a concussion. He took him to a Greenpoint hospital. Well, there was the horse and wagon full of empty milk bottles to be gotten back to the stables. Evie had never driven a horse, but that was no reason why she couldn't. She put on one of her husband's old overcoats, wrapped a shawl around her head, climbed up into the seat, picked up the reins, and called out, Get for home, drummer! The horse swung his head back to give her a loving look, then set off on a cheerful trot. It was lucky he knew the way. Evie hadn't the slightest idea where the stables were. He was a smart horse. He stopped at each intersection and waited while Evie looked up and down the cross street. If all was clear, she'd say, Giddy up, boy! If another vehicle was coming, she'd say, Just a minute, boy! In this way, they reached the stables without mishap, and the horse cantered in proudly to his usual place in the row. Other drivers, washing their wagons, were surprised to see a lady driver. They made such a commotion that the stable boss came running, and Evie told him what had happened. I saw it coming, the boss said. Flitman never did like that horse, and the horse never liked him. Well, we'll have to take on another man. Evie, fearful lest her husband lose his job, asked whether she couldn't take his route while he was in the hospital. She argued that the milk was delivered in the dark, and no one would ever know. The boss laughed at her. She told him how much they needed that twenty-two fifty a week. She pleaded so hard and looked so little and pretty and spunky that he gave in at last. He gave her the list of customers and told her the boys would load the wagon for her. The horse knew the route, he said, and it wouldn't be too hard. One of the drivers suggested that she take the stable dog along for company and protection against milk thieves. The boss agreed to that. He told her to report to the stables at 2 a.m. Evie was the first milk woman on the route. She got along fine. The fellows at the stable liked her and said that she was a better worker than Flitman. In spite of her practicalness, she was soft and feminine and the men loved the low and breathless way she had of talking. And the horse was very happy and cooperated as much as he could. 
He stopped automatically before each house where milk was to be left, and never started up again until she was safely in the seat. Like Flitman, she brought him to her house while she ate her dinner. Because the weather was so cold, she took an old quilt from her bed and threw it over him so he wouldn't catch cold while he waited for her. She took his oats upstairs and heated them for a few minutes in the oven before she fed him. She didn't think ice-cold oats were appetizing. The horse enjoyed the warmed oats. After he finished munching, she treated him to half an apple or a lump of sugar. She thought it was too cold to wash him on the street. She took him back to the stable for that. She thought the yellow soap was too biting, so she brought along a cake of sweetheart soap and a big old bath towel to dry him with. The men at the stable offered to wash the horse and wagon for her, but she insisted on washing the horse herself. Two men got into a fight over who should wash the wagon. Evie settled it by saying one could wash it one day and the other the next day. She heated Drummer's wash water on a gas plate in the boss's office. She'd never think of washing him in cold water. She washed him with the warm water and the sweet-scented soap and dried him carefully bit by bit with the towel. He never committed an indignity on her while she washed him. He snorted and whinnied happily throughout the washing. His skin rippled in voluptuous delight when Evie rubbed him dry. When she worked around his chest, he rested his tremendous head on her small shoulder. There was no doubt about it. The horse was madly in love with Evie. When Flipman recovered and reported back for work, the horse refused to leave the stable with him on the wagon seat. They had to give Flipman another route and another horse. But Drummer wouldn't get out with any other driver either. The boss had just about made up his mind to have him sold when he got an idea. Among the drivers, there was an effeminate young man who talked with a lisp. They put him on Flipman's wagon. Drummer seemed satisfied and consented to go out with the ladylike driver on the seat. So Drummer took up his regular duties again. But every day at noon, he turned onto the street where Evie lived and stood in front of her door. He wouldn't go back to the stables until Evie had come down, given him a bit of apple or some sugar, stroked his nose, and called him a good boy. He was a funny horse, said Francie after she heard the story. He may have been funny, said Aunt Evie, but he sure knew what he wanted. <laughs>